God says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to you. And if we've not had the privilege of meeting, my name's Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Revelation today. We are studying how Jesus calls us to live in this world even when it battles against God and his people. And we're seeing that not only does Jesus call us to be faithful to him, to resist the pressures of the world, but that he gives us the resources that make it possible. Today we start a new section in the book where Jesus talks directly to the seven churches of the time. Now by using the number seven, which is John's shorthand for the whole thing, the entire thing, we realize that what Jesus is saying to them, he's also saying to us. Because in a very important way, this is what God has to say to the whole church. Now I want to say something obvious for a moment. As we work our way through these letters, what you're hearing is how God thinks about his people what he approves of, what he doesn't approve of, what's important to him, how important it is to him. Now, why is that important to us? Because whether or not we like our church is not really the most important criteria. What's most important is whether he likes what we are. And that's not always the case. Obviously, he's going to talk to these churches about things he sees in them that he's not pleased with. It's hard, however, sometimes to know that from within ourselves. One thing that's true about people is that it's really, used, it's really easy for us to get used to the things that we do and to get used to the culture that we build, to get used to the status quo, to keep reproducing the status quo. And it's a small step from reproducing the status quo to thinking that the status quo is pretty good. It's easy to evaluate ourselves and measure ourselves from within ourselves and to walk away thinking, yeah, we're, we're pretty much okay. What we really need in that moment is some kind of an external review, a set of eyes that come in from the outside to help us see ourselves a little more clearly. Eyes that give us a more objective sense of what we're like, of whether we are where we need to be, and if not, what do we need to do to correct that? So as we read through these seven letters in the next two months, let me urge you, don't think of this historically. Oh, this is something that was to these seven churches. Think instead about what is the evaluation matrix that God is using as he gazes at his church. 
And then how do we take that same evaluation set of criteria and look and apply them to ourselves? Today we're listening to what he says to the church of, in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a really important city of its day. Quarter million people estimated at that time. That made it the fourth largest in the Roman Empire. It was also a local capital, most important city in the area. It was a major center of commerce. It was a major center of religion, home to the Artemis Temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a center of learning, had its own library, an impressive library. It was a center for practicing magic and the occult, all of which made it really challenging to be a Christian there. A lot of temptations, a lot of pressures on the church from the surrounding culture to adopt that culture, to change what people believed and taught. Now you can hear that in some of the other portions of the New Testament. Paul wrote a letter to one of a, his colleagues, a young pastor named Timothy. And in Paul's first letter to Timothy in chapter 1, he says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. When Paul's writing that, it's obvious to him already that the possibility of false doctrine, false teachings, was a significant danger to the Ephesian church. And that danger was coming from influential people who were teaching things that were different from what God had said. And those false doctrines threatened to bring what God was doing to a halt. Paul knew this firsthand. He had spent three years in Ephesus as a missionary. He was proclaiming the good news that God was rescuing people from evil. And when he left Ephesus to visit some other cities, he decided at one point he was going to return to Jerusalem, went back past Ephesus, and he invited the Ephesian elders to meet with him. He wanted to say one last goodbye to them because he wasn't going to see them again. And among the things that he did was he warned them, Acts chapter 20. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. You think, well, what does that mean? What are people going to do that make them savage wolves? He goes on, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Now remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to the elders and he says to them, that from your own number, from you, men will arise and distort the truth. They will change what God has said. They're either going to add to it or they're going to take things away from it. They'll distort the truth and they'll teach that to people for the sake of getting people to follow them. You start to realize this is a constant threat to the Ephesian church to take the popular ideas and practices from the surrounding world and then weave them into Christianity to adopt how the city thought and lived and bring those things into the church. So if you lived in Ephesus in the first century and you wanted to remain loyal to Jesus, you didn't have a choice. You, you had to be discerning. You had to be theologically astute. You had to be able to think biblically about the issues of the day, about the myths and the religions of the day. You had to think carefully and clearly to avoid corrupting the faith bringing in these unbiblical thoughts and ideas that would lead 
you and others away from God. And Jesus comes to the Ephesian church and he says, you guys excel at this kind of discernment. You excel at remaining doctrinally pure. He commends in verse 2 of our passage, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Jesus is very encouraging here. He's saying, you've been discerning. You've tested people who wanted to teach you, and you've discerned where their teaching is wrong, that they've been teaching things that are not true, that they've taken my words and twisted them for their own purposes. In other words, one of the characteristics of the Ephesian church is that they were people who worked really hard to know what was right to believe. And then they held on to that. And God noticed. It mattered to him that they had been faithful to the faith that he'd given them. Now, they didn't just have doctrinal purity, but he also tells them, verse 6, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And the emphasis in verse 6 is not on bad teaching, that was earlier, it's on bad living. It's on works that God hates. Now, very frankly, nobody knows what the Nicolaitans were doing or what they taught that led them to what they were doing. A lot of speculation. The only thing that we know about them is that they had a reputation for doing things that were outside of what God, how God calls us to live. And whatever these practices were, they were so bad that God says he hates, doesn't just sort of tolerate them, he hates what they're doing. So obviously not how he calls us to live. And the Ephesians also hated what they were doing. Now what do the Nicolaitans teach us? It's that there will always be groups of people among God's people who teach and do things that clearly have nothing to do with how God calls us to live. And again, God is very positive here. He commends the Ephesians for refusing to adopt these new practices and for refusing to adjust their own morality in line with these heretical, this heretical group. And so you bring together these two themes, and you realize that the Ephesian church was very good at discerning what made for true teaching and godly practices, for sound doctrine and orthodox living. They were really good at that. And yet, God says that they have a problem. And it's a problem that is so significant that if they don't deal with it, there are severe consequences. He says he will come to them. Sound teaching, godly morals notwithstanding, he will come to them and he will remove their lampstand. They will cease to exist as a church. Now, in theological traditions like ours that stress God's sovereignty in calling people to himself, there can be this caricature that creeps in among us that says, well, it doesn't really matter what people do. They can obey, disobey, doesn't matter. God will make everything turn out fine anyway. And you discover here that that's not how God talks. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's really sobering to hear. This group of people who were focused on thinking and living right are in danger of no longer being a church. 
Their continued existence depends on how seriously they take God's warning to them. How seriously they take his assessment that they have a problem. How seriously they act to correct the problem. Again, just get the background here. The Ephesian church had been a vibrant church for Christ. Ephesus was a base of operations for Paul that was so successful that Acts chapter 19 records that while he was there in Ephesus, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It was out of Ephesus that the province was evangelized. They were doing the work of a lampstand. They were shining the light of the gospel out into the rest of the region. And it was a work that they continued to do. It seems like initially they took the warning seriously because in the early second century, people were writing about them as Christians who were examples of faith, life, and witness. You could see what God was up to when you looked at them. Later, they even hosted one of the early church councils. Solid in doctrine and practice, well-known and respected. And yet, according to the scholar N.T. Wright, if you travel to the region now, you cannot find an active church there not in the modern city or in any of the surrounding towns or villages. And you have to conclude, despite their history, their lampstand has been removed. We have to take very seriously what God expects of his church, what he expects his church to be, and what he expects his church to do. Because he's not simply saying this to one ancient church halfway around the world. Look again at verse 7. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not to the Ephesians alone. It's what the Spirit says to the churches, to all the churches. This is for us. We need to know what God expects of us, what he urges us to do so that we are what he calls us to be. And if we're not, we should expect him to remove our lampstand as well. It's a very sober warning that has some really good news embedded in it. Because it's a warning, it means that God is longing for something different. That he doesn't want to have to remove their lampstand, that he longs for them, for us, to hear him and respond to him so that we end up with a different future. So my urging, renewal, is let's take him seriously by taking his warning seriously. And to do that this morning, we'll consider just two points. First, What is the problem that God sees? (laughs) He says so much that's good about this church. What is so bad that it jeopardizes their their existence? What's the problem? And then secondly, what's the remedy? What do we need to do if we find that the problem he identifies is here among us? So first, what's the problem? Verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They've abandoned the love they had at first. You think, okay, but what love are we talking about? At first clearly means when they came to know God, but is this love that they've abandoned their love for Christ? Is it their love for each other, for other people? Is it God's love for them? It's not immediately clear. So what do you do then? You back up and you look at the context. The opening verse 1 says that this letter is from him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now what you're going to see over the next couple of months as we read through these letters is that they all start differently. 
They all reference a different aspect of the vision of Christ that John described for us last week. So in this one, the focus is on Jesus with heavenly power as he's among the lampstands. Told us last week that the lampstands were the churches, and so the picture that we're given here uh, of how God sees the church, our place in his kingdom, is that we're a lampstand. We are to shine light to the world around us. It's very clear here the churches are not the light, but they are a lampstand. They are the means by which real light does shine. So here's Jesus walking among them in their light-shining function, and that starts to make more sense then of what's wrong with the Ephesians. Because all of the things that God commends the Ephesians for are inward. They're directed within the church, their own purity as a church. They're holding back evil, keeping it from infiltrating and corrupting what they believe and do. It's taking a lot of effort to do that. They're working, they're enduring patiently, they're not growing weary, but there is no commendation outwardly. There's no commendation for outward movement. No light shining that God affirms. And God says, that's not love. That's not why you're here. You're not here to be this self-contained, insular club of theologians. Thinking is vitally important. You have to be discerning if you're going to live in this world. But when you're done thinking, you're here then to throw that thinking, to throw that light out to those who don't have it, and you're not doing that. It's not always been like that. At one time, shining light was really important to you, God says. All of Asia heard of me through you. But now you've lost your passion, your love for others to see the truth and the goodness that you have worked so hard to discern. Now, whether that's others in the church who need to see and know God's love or it's people outside the church who need to see and know it for the first time doesn't really matter. What matters is that the Ephesians' concern for truth and right living got disconnected from caring for real people which is what truth and goodness are for. See, being right is not a badge we wear. It's not a sticker that we're proud of. Oh, I I know the right things. Instead, being doctrinally sharp is for what? It helps us understand God and his heart better so that we can connect better with him, which is exactly what others need as well. So if we're not communicating God's thoughts and his ways to others, the conclusion is pretty obvious. We don't care that much about other people connecting with him. We don't care about what they need to see him so that they can have a friendship with him. If you think back to the study that we did in the winter in Matthew 24, Jesus tied these two things together. He tied love and communicating God together. He tells us there, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Get the connection here. You can expect people's love to grow cold. That's what it's like to live in this world. People withdraw, they close in on themselves, and they become relatively unconcerned about others. 
But there are some, Jesus says, whose love does not grow cold. These are the ones who stand firm to the end, the ones who continue in love. Those are the ones who will be saved. And he connects that kind of ongoing, continuing love to what? To the gospel of the kingdom being preached to the whole world. Preached, proclaimed, not by professional proclaimers, but by those whose love has not grown cold, by regular, ordinary disciples. That's why we're still here. We've said this before. The reason that Jesus leaves anyone on earth, the reason that he leaves his church here, is bound up in our witness to him to the rest of the world. See, we could have had a relationship with him if he zapped us immediately into heaven when we first asked him to rescue us from our sins. But if that happened, we could not have a relationship with people who need to know him. We could not shine to others what it's like to know him. And so he leaves us here to shine, to communicate with our words and our actions what he's like, that he's willing to rescue us, to communicate what it's like to live in a family that he is the father of, to communicate the kind of transformation that he does in a person's life. Put it in a different way. Matthew 5, we are salt and light. In a world that's rotting and needs to be preserved, we are preservative. In a world that's dark and needs to see him, we shine. Abdicate that calling. Ignore it. Back away from it. Let it drop off your radar. And we might as well not be here. And the chilling part of Revelation chapter 2 is if that's really our wish to not shine effectively to the world around us. Jesus says that he will give us what we want. He'll remove our lampstand. Because he didn't leave us here for us. Did not leave us here so that we would create a nice, safe community where we feel comfortable. That's not why renewal is here. He left us here to shine light. I know this is hard for some of us to, to take seriously. We're used to hearing of God's grace, and we think that grace means it doesn't really matter what I do. It's a misunderstanding of grace. God is gracious, but his grace to us is for a purpose. It's to transform us. It's to make us more like him. So that what? So that now we do the kinds of things that he does. And the number one thing that he's doing on this planet is making himself known. He's breaking into a dark world and showing us what light is really all about. And he says, if you're not doing that, if you're not using my grace for the purpose I've given it, and if I let you continue living like that, you will just communicate a distorted view of who I am. If I let you keep doing that, you're not shining light. You're actually shining a new kind of darkness. Because you're telling people something that is not true of me. You're telling them that I don't care about them. That I have no interest in them. That I have no plans to rescue this world. That I don't care about people. That I'm only interested in building clubs where like-minded people band together to feel comfortable. And if that's the case, if that's what you're shining to the world around you, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember, this is not our church. 
we get to enjoy it. We get to enjoy being part of it. But first and foremost, and it's always been, his church. And he tells us what our purpose is and why we're here. Renewal. The main line, the suburbs, do not need us to show what it's like to navigate American culture and to succeed. Our neighbors don't need us to point the way to having a great career. They don't need us to help them understand how to enjoy a good life, figure out how to get our kids into good schools. They already know how to do all that, probably better than most of us. What they need is for us to be a lampstand that shines the light of God into this dark world. And if we refuse that, even by inactivity, there's no reason for us to be here. New Testament scholar G.K. Beale puts it this way. The Ephesian church will cease to exist as a church when the very function that defines the essence of their existence is no longer performed. When they no longer do what is at the heart of their function as a church, when they don't shine light, then they'll no longer exist because they abandoned the love they had at first. And if that was true for the Ephesian church, it's true for renewal as well. But you notice that another love is involved here, that the two great commandments, to love God and your neighbor, are a package deal. That shining light, love for others, is tied to love for God. Why is that? Because you talk about what you love. You can't help it. When something is wonderful in your eyes, when it's amazing, you can't help but talk about it. After church one Sunday in this past year, my, our youngest son, Danny, came to me and he said, Hey, Timmy, our, uh, uh, actually our first son, our, our second child, that's confusing. Timmy's down in the parking lot and he needs a jump for his car. His battery is dead or, or something. So I walked down there, and one of the Renewal brothers had seen Tim with his car hood up, and he asked if he needed help. Tim told him, no, my dad's coming to give me a jump. So this guy went to his car, comes back with this little pouch, and he said, I know it doesn't look like much, but this will jump your car. Now, I've jump-started cars for decades. It's a hassle. You have to maneuver and position the two cars next to each other so that the batteries are somewhat close to each other. It's almost never easy to do that. And then you have to take these unwieldy cables and that have four clamps, and you have to hold all four clamps apart so that they don't touch, so they don't short something out, so you don't hurt yourself. And then you have to connect them all in the right order. You turn on the good car, you let it run for a while to charge the dead one, and then you try to start the car that's not running, which about half the time doesn't work the first time, so you have to try again until the dead one starts. And then you have to take the clamps off in the right order. It's a process. So when this renewal brother says, this little thing will do it, Inward, inwardly I'm rolling my eyes and I'm thinking, there, there's no way that's going to work. <laughs> Can't we just get started with the production so we can all go home? His wife sees me and she says, I know. She says, no one believes this. But it always works. He unzips the pouch, connects just two leads, waits, I don't know, like five seconds, Tells Tim, okay, you should be good. Go ahead and start. And that car turns right over. 
And I am blown away. I'm thinking, why don't I know about this? Why hasn't anybody told me? So what do I do? I tell people. In fact, I can't shut up. Very next time I see Sally, I start telling her as soon as I see her. I tell my dad that afternoon when I call him on the phone. He goes out, he buys a couple for himself. Smiths buy four, one for each car. Tell another friend, he wants to know, well, where do I get one of those? I will tell anybody who will stop and listen. The company does not have to pay me. And suddenly, it's weird how this happens, suddenly there are people in my neighborhood who need a jump. So we have a neighbor come over one Sunday morning before church, says, hey, I have to get my friend to, my, to the airport. My car is dead. Can you give me a jump? Why, yes. <laughs> yes, I can. I walk over there. I probably have a little strut, if I'm honest with you. I have my own little zippered pouch at this point. Her car starts right up. Takes all of 30 seconds, maybe. What do I do then? I come home and I have to tell Sally all about this. Her car's all the way up in the driveway, I said. I, I'd have had to get Dan to help me. We'd have had to push it down the driveway into the street. Then we'd have had to get my car. We'd have had to position them, do all the connections. We'd still be out there. I have to tell Sally all about this. I have to tell each of my sons all about this. I tell my dad again. What am I doing? I'm talking about what I think is wonderful, amazing. And you do exactly the same thing. You talk about what you love. So why not Jesus? Why aren't the Ephesians talking about Jesus? Why aren't you and I if we're not? It's because he's no longer wonderful. Other things are more wonderful, more amazing. Now, what do you do if that's the case? You need that kind of amazement rekindled in your heart because you will never think to talk about him otherwise unless somebody makes you feel guilty because you're not. But even then, it's not going to last if someone has to tell you to say something about Jesus, then it's not because you don't know that you should. It's because you have no interest in doing so. How do you become motivated to do something you have no interest in? If it's not coming from inside of you, then what? Then it has to come from outside. It has to come from someone else. It has to come from knowing, believing, feeling, pick your word, that you are loved by God. It comes from you being blown away by how good he is to you personally. It comes from being in love with someone whose love is so much better than anything that you've ever had, so much better that all you really want in life, all you absolutely have to have in life, is to be with him, which is really the goal of life. This is what Jesus has won for us, right? What's promised to the person who overcomes their lack of love? their disinterest in others. It's verse 7. It's that Jesus grants to them to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What does he promise? What is so much more wonderful, so much more amazing than anything you've got? It's to be with him in his presence forever. The question then is, how do you get a taste of that now? A taste that will so wow you that you won't be able to keep silent 
that you will just have to tell people, you just have to talk about him when you're sharing your life with someone. That question takes us to point to the remedy. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This is so incredibly hopeful because Jesus does not look at you and say, well, now you've done it. <laughs> you've really messed up your life. You let something get away from you that you can't get back. You had your chance, and now it's gone forever. He doesn't say that. Which makes sense, right? When you screw up a human relationship, you don't just throw your hands up and say, well, guess there's nothing I can do. I hope you don't do that. Don't you act, try to repair what you're broken? Jesus is saying something very hopeful here. He's saying there is something that you can do. There are things that you need to do to rekindle this kind of lost love. He says, verse 5, you need to remember, repent, and return. I'm going to be very brief with these three. First, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Make yourself take a time out. Unplug from a busy world that keeps you focused on things that are temporal. And spend some time thinking about things that are eternal. Think about your relationship with God that will never end. Think about your relationship with his people that will never end. Go back to what it was like when God first broke through into your life. Do you remember how blown away you were? <laughs> how you could hardly believe that he would be this good? That you could actually feel him smiling at you, enjoying being with you, wanting to be with you. Remember this. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember how there were times when it was kind of like feeling full? Like there was something inside joy that just kept swelling up bigger and bigger and bigger? Remember how you felt energized with being what, after being with him? How you were satisfied, like you just had a really good meal? Do you remember how you couldn't wait to be with him? How you would get up early to read scripture, not because you had to, but because you knew he was sitting there right next to you talking to you? Remember from where you have fallen. Remind yourself how you used to love to pray, to praise, to sing, even if you weren't any good at it. Or remember how much you love being with God's people? How you felt a kinship, a connection, like you'd only ever had it best in your own family? A sense that you belonged here, that you didn't have to earn your place, you didn't have to work to make anyone proud, but that you could start unfolding, being you in a way that you had never been you before. Or remember how much you loved to talk about God and what he'd done for you. How you loved hearing about him from other brothers and sisters. How great it was to explore scripture together, pray together, be together. Remember how good it was to serve together? To have something that other people needed, to want to give that to someone else. Not looking for anything in return, but simply you wanted to give as freely as God had been giving to you. Remember from where you have fallen. Not just as a mental exercise. Submerge yourself in your memories. Re-experience them. Feel them so that you long for them again. If you find that you've abandoned the love you had at first, do this. 
Take time today. Get away by yourself. If you're parenting little children, ask your spouse, can I get 30 minutes? Stay up later. Get up earlier. Do whatever it takes to remind yourself of what this kind of love is like, of what his love for you is like, of what yours for him is like, of what yours for others is like. Remember. It's the first thing you have to do. Second, repent. Jesus began his ministry on earth by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was teaching us then that the kingdom of God advances by repentance. But repent of what? Repent of finding and delighting in something more than a God who loves you, like this one does. This goes to the heart of all relational dysfunction between people. Relational dysfunction happens when something else other than Jesus loving you, pouring love into you, when something else has become more wonderful to you. When something else has become more life-giving to you. When there's something that you want to get from another person that you think is better than receiving what God gives you. Something better than being loved by God. But then dysfunction happens when, for whatever reason, you can't seem to get it from the other person. Then the relationship breaks down because it's built on a dysfunctional agreement. Think about it this way. Why is it that we find it so hard to extend ourselves to someone when they're not extending themselves to us? Why is that? It's because we don't think it's fair. It's not what we want. It's not the deal we thought we made. We promised to be loving, kind, sympathetic, welcoming, compassionate, and we expect the other person to reciprocate. That's how we define a good relationship, right? We expect a certain level of reciprocity, that the other person will also be loving, kind, sympathetic, welcoming, and compassionate. But when they're not, what happens? Don't we find our love growing cold toward them? Not wanting to give to them because we don't think they're giving enough to us? Please realize here that this is not fundamentally a knowledge problem. We already know that we're supposed to love them anyway. We already know that that's what they need. The problem is what? We don't want to. We don't feel loving toward them. Why? They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. That's at the heart of every broken relationship. Somewhere along the way, the other person does not treat us the way that we want to, and so we withdraw from them. We berate them, punish them. We make the relationship conditional. I'll be good to you as long as you are good to me. And the solution here, please hear this, the solution is not, well, just man up. Just do the right thing. Love and keep loving. Doesn't matter what they do, just love and keep loving. Drain yourself all the way dry, just love and keep loving. That is not the solution. That leads to anger, it leads to bitterness, until what? <laughs> until you quit and give up. The solution is also not just wait them out. Wait for them to start acting loving again, and then you act loving in return. Both of those approaches will keep you tightly locked into a conditional relationship where you are only willing to give as good as you've been given to. The solution that Jesus urges you and me to take 
is to repent, to turn back, to decide that you don't want to try finding more life in someone or something else than you have found in him and in his love. And so when you find yourself being mean to someone, shriveling up with hate, just ignoring them, ask yourself, what am I looking for from them? What do I feel like I have to have that is more important to me than being loved by God in the way that he chooses to love me? By the way, that might not be the kind of love that you want from someone else. Jesus here is part of the way that he's loving, is rebuking. But if you think about it, the way that you want love from someone else often breaks relationships. Maybe his way of loving is better. That it will actually fill you up and give you what you need in order to enter into relationship with someone else. So ask yourself, what is more filling to me than his love? More satisfying? So that being loved by him is nice, but what I think I really need is her to understand me. Him to pay attention to me. Her to validate me. Him to commiserate with me. Her to sleep with me. Him to notice me. Her to stop interrupting. Him to stop blaming. None of those are bad things. They are things that we enjoy when the other person offers them. Every one of them is evil when they take the place of God's love for you, when you try to live off of them to get your life out of a human being instead of receiving the life that he would give you. When that happens, you make the human relationship condi conditional. It becomes, you give me what I want, and I will be nice to you, and I'll give you what you want. But if you stop, I might be able to keep going for a while, but eventually I'll stop too. The only way that you can have the love that you had at first is by repenting for where you stop drinking in love from God and try to find a substitute from the people around you. Repenting means you give up the substitute, you go back to the source. And when you do that, you're going to discover a love that's wonderful and a love that's amazing. Because simply the activity of repenting rekindles love in your heart for Christ. Because when Jesus says repent, what has he noticed? He's noticed that you and I have moved away from him and away from his love. We've abandoned him. We did not want what he had to offer us. We wanted something else. Now, if Jesus loved like we did, conditionally, what would be the way for him to respond? Get angry, get bitter, depressed, pull away until what? Until we finally figure it out and move toward him, right? It's not what he does. He notices that we have moved away from him, and in response, he moves toward us. He invites us back, calls us to repent, calls us to come back to rekindle the relationship. He should not have to do that, but he does. He reaches out. He invites you and me to turn away from belittling his love because he wants us back. That's amazing. That's a love like you have never tasted from another human being. Take him up on his offer and repent, and what are you doing? You are, in that moment, experiencing his love for you. So remember, repent, and return. Do the works you did at first, which means what? Spend time with him. Spend time in whatever way touches you. Worship, study, pray serve. These are what? The, the, we call them ordinary means of grace. The things that God has given us to do that allow us to reconnect with him. 
But if they're going to be of any value to you, you have to enter into them with the goal of connecting with him. So read your Bible with him in mind. Pause when something strikes you. Talk it over with him. Tell him what you're thinking, how you're feeling based on what he said. Don't just read words. Have a conversation with the author. Or when you pray, don't just monologue. Throwing words at him in one long, uninterrupted string. Pause. Let him bring ideas into your mind, bring scripture to you. Turn your attention to someone who needs his help. Have a two-way conversation. When you praise, don't just sing. Worship, sing to him. Feel his love in return. Feel his conviction. Feel his invitation to repent. Feel his forgiveness. Do the things you did at first to forge a connection with him. And do the things you did at first with other people. Share your life with them, your whole life. Talk about what God's doing in your life. Talk about why he matters to you. Don't worry about inviting someone to church. You can do that. But more importantly, invite them into your life. Your life as it's lived with him. Do the things you did at first. This is how you rekindle lost love. Remember, repent, and return. And you can enter into those things and do them with hope because Jesus makes a promise in verse 7. To the one who conquers, to the one who takes him seriously, to the one who remembers, repents, and returns, his promise is you will live in his presence. And he makes that promise because he has taken away the penalty for you abandoning his love in the first place. Jesus came to this earth the first time. Why? To show you God. He's the word of God made flesh, made visible. He came to show you God's character, his heart, his love, his longing to have you be with him. Jesus showed you God, which makes him the lampstand beyond compare. But then Jesus did the unthinkable. He removed himself from God's presence so that you would never be. So that you could regain the love that you had at first. The love that you didn't value enough to hang on to. He traded places with you so that you would live forever in his presence. So that you would not be shut out of God's paradise like Adam and Eve when they were sent away. Remember that. That's his kind of love. Repent for thinking that anything could be as deeply satisfying as he is and return. Return to loving him back and letting others see how amazing he is. Let me invite you. Take three, four minutes now.